Welcome to another episode of the Carriage House Planning Report. I'm Casey Fulp, and the owner and principal of Carriage House Planning. I want to welcome you today. Um, for today's Carriage House Planning Report, we're going to revisit the tack room. We're going to have another look from the tactical perspective as to what's going on in the markets right now, uh, what kind of economic forces seem to be at play, and we're going to evaluate the state of the recent increased levels of volatility in the major indices and across the markets and maybe uncover what's really going on. Um, additionally, I'm going to touch a little bit on the stimulus package that was just signed into law, but I'm not going to go into deep detail. There's plenty of other resources out there that are, I would say, even overanalyzing this particular bill. Um, there is tons of pork in this thing. It is a travesty that Government is comfortable doing what they do, especially with money that they don't have. Uh, but it is what it is. We need to make the most of the situation at hand. And in order to do so, understanding not so much what's in that bill, but the implications that this bill is going to put in front of us. I want to just quickly touch on that. And I'll, I'll do that at the end of today's conversation. But without further ado, let's open up the door and walk right into the tack room. Um, there's There's been no secret that since the middle of February, we have been seeing some higher levels of volatility. There's been some selling in some of the largest tech names that seem to grab everyone's attention. Uh, and they should grab everyone's attention. But one of the main reasons that they get so much attention is not only are these companies large and, and pervasive in our lives in so many different ways, but they also, due to their size, happen to have a significant representation in the major market indices that we use to uh, measure or, or kind of take the pulse of the general markets. Um, whether that's right or wrong, I don't think is worth exploring as much as understanding that these big tech names are uh, disproportionately weighted in the S&P 500, in the NASDAQ 100, these indices that use capitalized uh, weightings where the highest or largest capitalized companies represent the largest percentage of the index, that has to be a factor for consideration for a number of reasons. And in this case, I think it's very telling as to what might really be happening in the markets. And it can give us an indication of what we should be expecting as we move forward. I'll come right out and say it right now. As I said a couple weeks ago, I do not believe that we are currently entering a period of prolonged selling. Now, I am not going to say that that period of time is not soon upon us. It very well may be. I've had a distant call for prolonged selling to begin towards the end of April, beginning of May. I still stand by that. I believe that there are a number of headwinds that the market will face come the end of the first quarter and really into the, the heart of the second quarter of the year. Um, but for the time being, I do not believe that this is prolonged selling. I believe that we're going to continue to see the markets bid their way back up. Uh, and that's a good thing. Are they bidding up for the right reason? It depends. Uh, the stimulus bill certainly is one potential cause. But let's explore what really happened on the selling side and what the real story might be uh, kind of under the hood. Um, the tech sell-off got so much attention, as I mentioned, because of the main indices, the S&P 500, the, uh, the NASDAQ 100. These, these grab attention from just about any and every investor, anyone who watches the news. 
Um, the Dow Jones, you'll notice, had a bit more stability through this period of time. And that's due in part to the fact that there isn't such the tech weighting in, in that particular index. Uh, but it is price weighted. So that one will have its own kind of uh, you know, skewed nature about it. So we, we have to be cautious when we look at those to say how well the market's doing. But when we look at, at when we're looking at the tech sell-off, I think there's three real reasons or potential catalysts that were driving the selling. The first one is inflation expectations. When you look at the stock market in general, it would not be imprudent to say that the stock market attempts to be a leading indicator. Because the nature of investing is you're buying today what you believe will be valuable over time. The nature of investing requires foresight and the ability to attempt to see uh, whatever may exist in the future. Now, while I, by no stretch of the imagination, conduct my investment discipline on tea leaf reading or crystal ball gazing or anything of the sort, uh, there has to be an element of looking down the road at the weight of the evidence today and what it potentially points to as we analyze what might be happening in today's world. One of the big potential headwinds or, or real kind of ugly monsters that, that might be hiding under the bed, or it's probably not hiding so much as it is, um, you know, it's, it's foot's hanging out one side, it's tail hanging out the other side of the bed. There's, real no, there's really no hiding here, but is, is this notion of inflation. It's going to be near impossible to make it out of the decision making that the U.S. government, in combination with the Federal Reserve, uh, the decision making that they have been doing for really the past 10 to 15 years, it, it, it's been good along the way, but really ever, ever since the financial crisis when the Federal Reserve stepped in in a way that was unheard of before, monetizing debt, protecting markets in a way that in many cases you could easily argue are unconstitutional, but also coming in and being the end-all be-all savior of the markets. We, we all know that religion is not something that humans are, are ignorant to. Uh, through history, religions of various forms, they come in many shapes and sizes, have been a prominent role in so many different people's lives. And unfortunately, there has become a religion of the Fed. The idea that there is a savior uh, out there, and it's an eternal savior in the Fed, that is a very dangerous mentality that our markets have become quite uh, obsessed with and, and at times almost addicted to. We saw a, a pretty aggressive intraday spike just a couple, it was actually last week, when there was a one-on-one -on -one with the chair of the Fed, Jerome Powell, and everyone was expecting him to come in and do what would be something like a QE twist or trying to sway the long end of the yield curve, the 10-year treasury market that had been seeing yields exploding which means that if you want to understand what a, a rising yield means in the bond world, it means that the price of the underlying security itself is diminishing. People are selling it. And because it has a fixed coupon on that particular investment instrument, uh, as the selling goes and the price declines because of selling, that stated coupon 
is as a percentage of the price to buy that particular investment, it, 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 the, the coupon becomes a higher percentage of the price. Therefore, the yield on that bond goes up. We saw this massive spike in the 10-year uh, yield, which is to say that people were selling the 10-year. So everyone was expecting Jerome Powell to come in and say that they would come in and buy the 10-year, and they, he didn't say that. And for that reason, all of a sudden, as he was talking, the market just started selling like like crazy. That's almost like a, a drug addict throwing a temper tantrum because he couldn't get a fix. It, it's not a good indication long-term, um, and it's really not a healthy way to look at, at markets in general. But Again, this is another case. It is what it is. We need to try to navigate around it. But that was a pretty good indication. The spike in the 10-year, the type of, of market activities that are occurring, there is a high propensity for fear of future inflation to be on the table right now. Why would that lead to tech selling? Well, because of the, the sheer nature of inflation, commodities by virtue of, of what they are, these are usually something that are required regardless of what market conditions are like. Commodities are oil, commodities are copper, commodities are lumber, timber, things that really in, in the grand scheme, they're going to still be required regardless of whether they're expensive or cheap. Uh, so people pile into commodities when inflationary pressures become uh, a potential event on the horizon. And the reason they pile in is if you hold a cash dollar, the purchasing power of that dollar declines as inflation increases. So instead, you want to own something that will increase with inflation. And commodities are one way to do that. Well, one of the industries or sectors of the market that is so dependent on commodities is the industrial sector, the manufacturing, the industrials. These are companies out there that tend to fall on the value side of the growth and value conversation. And they also tend to fall, in many cases, on the small side of the capitalization uh, spectrum. So small value is, is really the counter opposite in the equity space to large growth. They occupy two separate corners of a basic grid. You have your, your large and small on you know, what would be your y-axis, and your x-axis is your growth and value, value being on the left side, growth being on the right. And, and you can imagine large growth puts you in the top right corner of the grid, and small value puts you in the bottom left. Small value has been seeing a lot of money inflow. A lot of investors are moving there. So that is a good uh, confirmation that what we are seeing is a flight out of the growth-oriented tech and positions that will be impacted negatively by inflation and instead going to the types of positions that will theoretically work their way through an inflationary economy in a, a more stable way. Now, does it mean that inflation is about to happen? No. When inflation really begins to surface, in an interesting way, uh, the markets usually run very hot very quickly. And that's because there's a lot more money in circulation. There's a lot more money in people's pockets. They want to do something with that money. They want to be invested in something because they don't want to hold the cash. So they start to pile into all types of investments. They don't want to just concentrate in one sector, one segment. They'll pile in just about anything. So it ends up pushing the markets up, but then there becomes a day of reckoning. Nothing can go up forever, and, and that's often what happens. Historically, we can see a lot of cases of this when we do see those inflationary pressures occurring. 
But I bring it up today simply to highlight the fact that that's one probable catalyst for the selling. You also see a good bit of money flowing into the finance space. Uh, finance is another industry that, while it doesn't necessarily see the same logical uh, insulation from inflation, generally speaking, financial companies, small banks, etc., do quite well in inflationary environments, at least in the onset. And a lot of that has to do with the reason I mentioned where money piles into the market. People all of a sudden have this ability to spend. They have this money, which doesn't necessarily carry the same purchasing value that it used to. But generally, in the early onset, those inflationary uh, effects haven't yet fully matured into the marketplace. So the, the, the only way you really get inflation is there has to be a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets and then prices have to go up because of that. And you kind of see how a, a cycle can form. But there's, there's always the start of the cycle. It's, it's sort of the starter on the engine. Um, there's there's some, some benefit at the front end, but it doesn't typically last long and it's not sustainable. Now, the second of the three possible catalysts that were driving the selling is just sheer rationality. The idea that the companies that were deemed stay-at-home stocks, mainly the tech companies that were highly capitalized, large companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the um, Apples, the Microsoft, these were companies that were positioned in a way that government-imposed shutdowns on business did not affect them the same way that they affected, let's say, a restaurant or, or even a manufacturing or an agriculture type of, of um, industry. And with that, these stocks ran up to the point where they had price-to-earnings ratios that were peaking above 25 and 30. And that type of pricing eventually reaches a point where there there is some sanity and some rationality in the world. And it's usually that sanity and rationality begins to surface when other areas of the market begin to perform well also. And people say, okay, I don't just have to buy these stocks that are egregiously overpriced for what they should do in the coming months and years. I can now place money elsewhere in the markets. That idea of diversifying the investment and diversifying the overall portfolio or the outlook of, of the future, it really dovetails nicely with what I believe is the third and greatest potential catalyst for the recent tech selling. At the start of today's episode, I mentioned the cap-weighted nature of the major indices. If we were just to use the S&P 500, we'll leave the NASDAQ 100 out of the, out of the equation right now, but if we were just to use the S&P 500, almost any investor be it an investor through some type of retail brokerage account, an investor through some type of IRA, 401k, 403b, the big pensions that still exist. There are a few out there. Uh, most of them are, are state pensions. All of those different investment avenues in virtually all cases, both the individual investor and the institutional investor have some exposure, if not a great amount of exposure, in indexed funds of some form or another. Index fund meaning they own a fund that is uh, a representation of or is in fact the S&P 500 as a as a, a, a investment. 
you can't actually buy the index itself. What you do is you go and buy a fund that bundles up the uh, stocks at the percentage weighting of the index, and, and then you own that. Well, one of the things that I think was not talked about much in the initial run-up of markets following the March shutdown and the stimulus dollars with the stimulus bill that was passed at that time, a lot of people who were A, home and they hadn't necessarily, you know, had extra time on their hands before because they were working, now they had time on their hands. So we heard about all the day traders and and that kind of thing. They were a part of this, but generally speaking, people as a whole found themselves receiving money. And at that time, because it was so early on in the pandemic, not that they lacked foresight for themselves, but unfortunately, people in most cases couldn't have expected the government to carry on with the nonsense that they have for as long as they had in terms of keeping people out of work. Most people wouldn't have expected that to continue for more than 13 weeks, maybe. Because remember, the government shutdowns, the government imposed shutdowns when they first occurred, and the mask mandates and all that, it was to, quote unquote, flatten the curve. The flatten the curve was, we'll only need to do this for four to eight weeks. That was the, at the time that the stimulus package passed, the initial stimulus, the time that that passed, that was the uh, call de jour that the government officials who are all-knowing and all-protecting came out with. The problem with that was people received this free money, and they wanted something to do with it because they figured they'll get back to work, so they didn't want to go and just pocket it or put it in the bank or whatever it was, so they went and invested it. And in a lot of cases, if not most cases, what they would invest in, because they aren't necessarily sophisticated investors, maybe they were new to the investment world altogether, well, and this is again, this is specifically on the retail side, they would go and buy something like SPY, which is one of the largest S&P 500 index funds. But that same concept with these dollars coming in, there were a lot of businesses out there that received stimulus. A lot of them took this money that was free in the sense that it would be forgiven. They took that and said, well, we can stash this money as additional contributions to our our qualified plans for our high net worth or high paid individuals. A lot of companies massaged and manipulated the, the money that came out of the stimulus package. And in many cases, it went straight into index funds. Well, by nature of the weighted indices, those big tech companies were disproportionately purchased up as a result of individuals buying those broad index funds. That added to the overvaluation of these stocks, reaching the PE multiples that we mentioned a moment ago. Now, as we've moved forward and we do see that different governments are allowing their economies to open and operate back at some capacity of normal. Um, you know, that's a fairly contagious act, which is a great thing. As we see these economies opening back up, as we see the state, local, and then again, as our American economy opens back up, now people are looking at their portfolios. Now institutional investors are looking at their portfolios and they're saying, hey, we need to diversify. We've been owning these indexes. And because these tech companies have been continually piled into, these indexes aren't well diversified 
For example, I took a rough calculation of where the S&P 500 is. And as of right now, technology represents 53% of the S&P 500. So just one sector of the market is half of the index. While that you can quickly argue away as, well, there's all types of different technology. It's not a, you know, a one size fits all. I, I respect that. The problem though is after that, you have consumer cyclicals at 15% and healthcare at 15%. So now what you do is you have a real big issue because you've got close to 80%, if not more. And in this case, it's 83% of the index represented only by three sectors of the economy. That is not how you want to uh, position a portfolio, especially when you have potential inflation on the horizon, potential taxes and other headwinds on the horizon. So I genuinely believe that what we're seeing is the selling is not so much fear of the markets declining as it is repositioning towards a more appropriate, rational and generally sound portfolio in a variety of types of investors accounts, again, be it institutional or retail. And one additional side note consideration that has to be included in the discussion is the idea that anytime you see a significant run-up in equities, especially one that is resulting almost directly from monetary policy intervention combined with fiscal stimulus, the investors out there are not ignorant to the idea that any positions that run up will eventually have to pay the piper. Capital gains taxes, income tax, whatever it might be out there, there are thoughts and considerations that are taken by just about any investor, some more than others, but especially on the institutional side, a lot of investment firms would be foolish not to recognize that even if things go up for years to come, let's say that's the best optimistic scenario, they've now entered into a new tax year and they're looking at the situation as they've got positions in, let's say, the, the big fang, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. They've got disproportionately large gains in these positions. Even if they plan to own them for the long haul, they need to go ahead and realize some of the gains because what they don't want to do is sit on these things and let them go up forever because eventually there will come a time where they need to sell them for technical, tactical, fundamental reasons, and they don't want to be stuck in a position where they have to decide how long do we let this thing decline when we know, based on our evaluation, it's going to be declining, but we can't sell it because doing so is going to set off a massive tax bomb. And that tax bomb, it's one thing if you know what the tax code will be in the future. It's another when there's a high probability that taxes will change drastically between now and even the end of this year. So realizing gains is just another reason. Now that we're in a new tax year, we see that there's a cooling off period. That is something that might also have impacted some of this selling. There remains a rotation occurring from what seems to be growth to value, but that has paused momentarily over the past couple of days. So as I mentioned two weeks ago in the last tack room, I am not yet ready to commit to the idea that that rotation is in fact going to be the new prevailing trend. It will likely become the prevailing trend, but as of right now, there is not weight of the evidence in favor of it yet. Okay, so let's leave the tack room 
and let's take a quick look at some policy decisions that have been made and how they affect you financially, not only in the current terms, but in the planning terms. And we'll, we'll quickly touch on how it affects investments in, in the portfolio. The stimulus bill was passed. We now have uh, checks that will be cut in the near future, 1400 per member of the household. Uh, fortunately, there was a few sane or borderline sane individuals who at least acknowledged the importance of reducing the threshold for the free money. But there are also a number of additional provisions in this bill. There's some child tax credits that are going to be fully refundable. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I'm not going to get into all the details of the bill. There's a ton of pork in there. Some of the stuff just it makes you nauseous to see how ridiculous these individuals are when making decisions around, again, money that doesn't exist. They, it's magic money that they're just going to, to borrow and then monetize. And this is not sustainable. But they rationalize it by saying, when times are bad, you have to spend more. That's basically Keynesian economics. Anyway, <laughs> I want to bring this up because there will be some support for markets that will result from this. There will likely be some additional cash flow into the markets that will ultimately prop markets up. A lot of people are getting back to work. And for that reason, they will get a stimulus check and they will also be hopefully receiving additional income by way of earned income. For that reason, they will look to potentially set this money aside. We had been a very spend happy uh, economy the past year has forced individuals not to be able to spend. They still will to some extent, but the likelihood of an increased savings rate is high, and that's in mass. That's that's on the whole. It's there. That that possibility most certainly exists. What I want to highlight though is how quickly the current administration has pivoted from passing this particular bill into law and into legislation and into effect. And now immediately they're in the works on the next bill that will have quote unquote stimulus. And that is going to be focused highly on the infrastructure conversation. This was something that Trump actually ran on four and a half years ago, five years ago almost. Infrastructure is most certainly a problem in the United States. The bigger problem, though, is how government defines, views, and handles infrastructure projects. I won't get into the details of how the bidding processes go, how ludicrous the scale and size of the federal government has become, and because of that, the amount of excess dollars that get lost in the, the weeds is it's terrifying, really. It's, it's something that most Americans have no clue on, but domestically... How we define infrastructure is one problem because there is no set definition. And the other thing is this idea that we have now started up the magic money machine that can print and print and print, and eventually it'll all be okay because printing it will make everything fine. It's not sustainable. We do have a big problem. And where the problem comes in is all the way back to the first point I made when we were talking in the tack room about inflation. You keep printing money and if you have the types of, of individuals in charge who say that inflation really doesn't matter anymore, and that is the stance that is being taken currently by chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, in combination with virtually everyone in the current administration, they're not concerned with inflation. 
why that's important. If all of these spending efforts are funded on dollars that were generated not from earned sources, they are going to effectively print money injected into the marketplace. When you do that, inflation will inherently arrive. Now, if every other government on the planet is also doing it, there's a relativism that would potentially cancel some of the effects. The U.S. will definitely do more of it. But if every country, but there, that's not the case. Every country out there is not doing that. And some of the greatest rivals out there in terms of economic supremacy are not doing it to the extent that the United States is. But also what matters is as we approach the infrastructure bill, and that starts to be something that the administration pushes on, if inflation begins to surface, the way that you combat inflation is that the Federal Reserve generally will use their monetary policy tools to raise interest rates, which makes the borrowing of money more expensive. Now, that's great and wonderful until one of the greatest borrowers of money is the U.S. government, who in turn has their own interest that they have to pay on their loans. Granted, yes, it's much lower, uh, but because of the scale of the borrowing that they've been doing, it's not an affordable amount of money. So if the Federal Reserve were to come in and say, we do need to increase the overnight lending rate, we need to try to work monetary tools into the market that would increase rates across the board, one of the rates that will be impacted is the government's rate that they have to pay on their borrowed money. When that occurs, you have a real big problem because then you end up in the debt cyclone. You get whipped away. So more likely than not, what we'll see is the government shy away from and the Fed shy away from the idea of raising rates. We will stick with ZERP, zero interest rate policy. Well, how then do we combat both inflation as well as the potential consequences of printing for free and running up a deficit and a debt that are out of this world? Well, on the two sides of a household, and I never, I don't like to use households as a comparison for government spending because they're not something that you can easily parallel. But if we just think about our households, there's two ways that you can fix your debt. You can spend less or you can earn more. Now, if the government is not exactly spending less in any big hurry, and we know that from years and years and years of increased spending, in fact, if you look at the way that the government budgets work, if a budget does not increase, now this is the same government that tells you we don't currently have any inflation. Okay, so you got to take that out. But if any budget does not increase year over year, it is considered a budget cut. Last I checked, that's not quite how it works, folks. But that is the way that we as a United States government and we the people are effectively the reason that our government exists the way that it does. We have agreed that that's an okay way to look at things. If they keep spending, how are they going to combat what would otherwise become a debt that will end up crushing the economy? They're going to need to earn more. Well, we all know that the government doesn't earn a dime, but they're going to take it. Increases in taxes are a certainty. When? I'm not yet going to be able to call that. They are already in place in one of the greatest 
gold mines that the government's looking at right now is the transfer wealth. Transfer of wealth is one area that they will secretly derive a massive amount of income because of the amount of wealth that will exchange hands due to the aging of the baby boom generation. There is expected to be something to the tune of $30 trillion moving hands from the baby boomers to X, Y, and whichever generation comes beyond that. And they've already begun assaulting the transfer of wealth. And oftentimes it's presented as uh, inequality or equity in that baloney. You work very, very hard your whole life. You don't spend. You're fiscally responsible. You want to save because you want to be able to provide your children with a better future and an easier life and that type of thing. But whack, all of a sudden, that's not allowed any longer. Your hard work is not allowed to go where you want it to go. It's to go to the greatest charity on earth, which is the government. And I say that tongue fully pressed into my cheek. Therein lies a big problem, but taxes in general will definitely be going up, which brings us back to one of the points as to why the potential selling is occurring. I'm not the only one that sees this and knows this to be true. So as we are planning forward and we're looking at our own financial plans, factoring in a higher rate of income tax in combination with a higher rate of estate taxation in forms that aren't obvious. It could be things like doing away with the stretch provision on inherited IRAs. It could be things like doing away with the capital gain step up. These are all things that have been included in or are already in place, included in Biden's tax proposal, but otherwise already in place, which is the uh, removal of the stretch provision on IRAs. That's already in place. But the uh, elimination of a step up in cost basis on taxable assets as they are passed from one generation to the next, that is a big part of what the Biden administration's tax plan uh, puts into place. These types of policies are going to be counterproductive, but they're also going to be destructive to those who have been planning around and planning on things, staying somewhat status quo. Again, I'm not going to try to gaze into a crystal ball, read any tea leaves, but I'm looking at the weight of the evidence, and currently the weight of the evidence does not show an alternative path for the government to get themselves out of the pickle that they put themselves in. The biggest pressure is going to be inflation. How they handle it will give us a very clear idea of what we can expect going forward. That's another habit of the U.S. government. Once they start something, it's very rare that they stop it. Once they grow, it's very rare that they shrink. If they start taxing in earned income, if they start taxes at the highest echelon, the top 0.0001%, the people that are making millions upon millions upon millions every year, you can't convince yourself that that won't eventually scale down the ladder of income and eventually find its way into your pocket. That's what happened when the income tax was initially introduced. It was presented as only the robber barons are going to be taxed, not everybody else. Yet here we are with an income tax that is a part of our daily lives. The history has to be seen as a relevant guidepost or guideline for what to anticipate as we move forward. All right, that's enough for today's tack room plus a little extra note. I hope it's valuable for you. If you have any planning questions, if there's anything specific to your portfolio that you'd like to discuss, please give us a call at Carriage House Planning. 
You can find us on the web at www.carriagehouseplanning.com. I would love the opportunity to talk with you, hear what you're experiencing, learn about the hard work that you've put in, and what you want to do with it as you move forward through your life towards what will hopefully be a phase in your life that you would call the work optional years. I'll look forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime, I'll be working on another episode of the Carriage House Planning Report coming out next week. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Investment advisory and financial planning services are offered through Carriage House Planning, LLC, a registered investment advisor authorized to do business in states where registered or otherwise exempt from registration. Nothing discussed during the show should be viewed as investment advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please contact us at 727-643-8666, or you can schedule an introductory meeting via our website at www.carriagehouseplanning.com.